wife's family name is Klein. Uh, those of you who are German might recognize that uh, that name means little or small. If you met the German side of that family, German-Romanian side of that family, although I think it's German-Hungarian-Romanian, they're not sure. The, country, the town where they lived kept moving from country to country. <laughs> but they're all named Little. And these are a bunch of big guys, big strapping guys. You know, and I just imagine people going along, they're calling, you know, here's her Uncle Bob, Bob Little. Here's Bob Little. And you just run into folks every once in a while that they just have the wrong name. And I was, um, I was thinking about our conversations about Peter and realizing that maybe the reason Jesus gave him a different nickname is because he had the wrong name. You see, his original name, Simon, is one who listens, a hearer, a listener. Now you've probably, if you're familiar with the New Testament, recognize that that's not one of his major traits, right? And so Jesus maybe just said, Simon isn't going to work for you because I know you, and that doesn't fit. So we're just calling you Rocky because that fits better. Jesus would later name James and John the Sons of Thunder, which I think is a cool nickname too. You know, I, I wonder if Jesus is the one laying out all these nicknames. You know, Didymus, the twin, Zealot for one of the Canaanites, Shorty for the little guy. I wonder if Jesus is the one who names all these, nicknames all these guys. It's common. A bunch of guys get together, you start throwing around nicknames, right? Boogerface, <laughs> Blockhead. You know, we, we share affectionately with one another. I wonder if that's what happened here. Because if you think about this guy being named the listener, the hearer, the one who listens, and then you read the New Testament, doesn't fit at all. He's the one who talks. He's the one who speaks up, sometimes before he should. But he's called, his name means one who listens until Jesus changes it. So as we, as we talk about this this morning, have you ever had a nickname? Did the nickname fit? My first nickname was Buddy. The reason my nickname was Buddy was because my first name is Walter. I have an uncle who's four days younger than I am. I keep doing this because he was always littler than me. He's four days younger than I am. His name is Ralph. And Ralph could not say Walter. And so he tried and he tried and he tried, and he finally gave up and just started calling me Buddy. And I was just his buddy. He could say Buddy. And so that nickname stuck, and it stuck through my family for, for years and years and years. That was my name. And I thought that was not too bad. Buddy's not a bad name. I also have a German square sort of a head. I was born with the, the doctor pulled me out with the forceps and stuff. My mom said I had big lumps on my head, and she rubbed it down, tried to make it as round as she could. didn't work. So I had blockhead for a little while. Having been raised in a family I told you about last week, I put a stop to that one as soon as I got a chance. Have you ever had a nickname that you didn't like? Did you ever get one that was descriptive? It worked. It was true. But you didn't really like it. I like the way Jesus nicknames Simon. Rock's a pretty good name. You know? If you're going to get a nickname, why not get one that's kind of cool sounding like the Rock? So cool that somebody took it as a stage name in modern times. The Rock. 
as we talk about Peter today, as we kind of are going to start working through the identities of these disciples and see if we can identify with some of the, the differences in those guys and sort of answer the question, why those guys? I want you to, to just watch the process of this man's life and kind of see if you can understand a little bit of his character from the experiences that he has. Okay? So would you, uh, would you pray with me again as we get started? Father, we are, we are going to look into the Scripture, and as, as Bob has said, we need the guidance of your Spirit. That the things we look at, understand, read, will not just be the, left to the interpretation of our own heart and mind, but will be led and understood and guided by your Holy Spirit. May the things that happen here be like the things that happen in heaven, the things of your will and your will alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's Peter. He was born, as best we can tell, right around the turn of the millennium, around 1 B.C., 1 A.D., right in there. He's, he's, we're guessing, kind of, because of his age when he meets Jesus and the, the leadership and some of the, the, the historical records that sort of describe his age. Remember, they didn't, te- they didn't keep really great records in those days. People weren't handed a birth certificate when their child was born. So we're, we're, we're taking a little bit of a stab out of it, but, but it looks pretty close to that, that basic time. He's married and has children and moves to Capernaum from Bethsaida where he lived. It's a town nearby. It's not far off. It's, it's, a, it's a decent walking distance to, get to, to make that move. Um, so moving to Capernaum was not a huge move, but it got him closer to the lake. It's actually a community on the lake. And as Peter becomes a fisherman, it's very important to live on the lake. He's introduced to Jesus in around 27 AD. He already has a wife. He already has some kids. And he's living with his mother-in-law or she's living with him, whichever happened. You know, he may have moved to Capernaum because that's where his family, his wife's family had a house. We don't know for sure. But he's living with her. She's living with him. In 27 AD, um, he's introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Jesus calls him while he and his brother are fishing sometime during 27 AD. So he's introduced to him. And I think you need to recognize as you're reading the New Testament, you're getting a squished sort of version, especially if you're reading Mark. Mark just slams everything together really quickly. And um, a lot of scholars think that Mark is Peter's voice, that Mark is writing down the story as Peter tells the story. And so if that's true, then you're getting kind of that rushed sort of thinking, the guy who speaks quickly and everything's happening fast. Mark is doing that. Mark is, Mark is moving very quickly through the story. And so the call, of Jesus, the call of Jesus on the disciples' lives gets squished into the first chapter. You don't get an introduction to who Jesus is, where he came from. Bam, he's out and he's calling disciples. That's the beginning of the book. But if you look at the story, kind of put the pieces together. There's, there's some great chronological records in the New Testament you can find all over the Internet. Just kind of pick one of those out and look for that, those first few chapters and this calling of these disciples. And you'll kind of get a better shape of the picture. So sometime in 27 AD, Jesus, who has been introduced to him prior to this by his brother Andrew, comes, finds him and his uh, brother fishing, calls him to come into service, calls him to become a disciple. Jesus renames him Cephas. Now we call him Peter because that's what the Bible translates for us. Jesus calls him Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for rock or rocky. Okay, so Jesus says, your name is Simon. I'm going to call you Cephas, which is the rock. And if you read your scripture, the Bible says, which is translated Peter, Petros. Petros is the name in Greek and Peter is the transliteration of that into English. Got all that so far? Oh, good. Moving right along. 
So his life with Jesus begins with Jesus in, in, in some pretty interesting, dramatic spots. We're not going to cover everything. There's probably 30 events with Jesus and Peter where Peter actually speaks. But this one is Jesus is coming down to the lake. Now, Jesus leaves a pretty, a pretty hectic life. And there very rarely are moments where you say Jesus was somewhere by himself. This is one of those places. Jesus goes down to the lake by himself. Whatever's going on with everything else, life is a mess, things are stressful, some bad things happen in his life. Whatever is going on, he goes to the lake by himself. Now, can you picture yourself in that space where you would go, sit down by a lake, just kind of relax, just get away, take a breath, enjoy the lake, enjoy the, the, the waterside. I was going to say beach, but it's, a, it's a, along the Sea of Galilee, it's a stone beach. It's not a sandy beach. So you're not really like beach as you think of beach. It's a, it's a rocky sort of beach front. He's there sitting on that beach trying to, I think, catch his breath, maybe just enjoy the morning, and people start to come. And if you watch the New Testament, this happens all the time to Jesus. He goes to take, take a break, and people show up, and people show up, and people show up. And it, pretty soon the crowd gets so large, the Bible says Jesus is pushed off the beach. Now think about it. You're, the crowd is getting so large that he's backing up and backing up and backing up. Now he's in the water. And now Jesus is kind of starting to wade a little bit and his tunic's starting to get wet or something. I don't know why exactly he does it, but he gets in Peter's boat. And then Peter is called to come and row out a little bit. My expectation is that Jesus gets in the water, people just start wading in. It seems like people just want to get as close as they can to Jesus. So my, my, my thinking on this is, how do you get that crowd from, to stop pushing? You, you row out till it's over their heads. Right? You just row out far enough that they're going to have to stop or swim. And so I think he just backs it up enough that it kind of takes them, takes them gets some space, gets, gets an opportunity to get away from them, all, from them all, and he begins to preach. He's preaching then from the back of Peter's boat. And as he, as he begins to, to preach, the, he, he finishes his sermon. And when he finishes, he says to Peter, put out in the water and lower your nets. Now, the Sea of Galilee is very clear, and they don't fish during the daylight hours because when you throw the net in, all the fish run away. Okay? They're not dumb. They see this thing coming down. They get out of the way. And so they didn't normally fish during the daylight hours. Peter has this conversation with him. He says, okay, well, you know, we, we fished all night, didn't catch anything. And uh, we don't normally do it this way. But, and it's an interesting first sort of glimpse into Peter's recognition of who Jesus is. He says, because you say so, I'll do it. And so he dropped, he goes out, and when Peter saw, uh, when, then, I'm sorry, I skipped a piece. He throws his nets into the water. They're so full, he can't drag them in. He has to call for help from his friends, James and John, who will become the sons of thunder. Calls for them to come and help. And so they start dragging the nets, and the Bible says they fill two boats full of fish. Both boats are full so much that they're about to swamp the boats. They're so, so heavily laden. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at, his, at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. There's some cool underlying things going on here. Peter's about to ask this guy to go on a mission that's going to take him away from home. And he makes provision for his family before he leaves. You ever realize that? He makes provision for James and John and Peter and Andrew's families before he leaves by giving them this massive catch of fish. He takes care of us. He calls us. He empowers us. He cares for us. He watches over us. All of that as these things move in. So that's the first one I share with you. Then Peter gets a little course correction. Have you noticed that Peter gets course corrections regularly? You notice that in his life? 
Peter runs off and sort of gets off track and has to be recorrected all the time. That happened to you? Happens to me. Jesus course corrects Peter several places. Um, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John, and they go up the mountain. Now, he's got Rocky and the Sons of Thunder. (laughs) Have you thought about this? Jesus' best friends, Rocky and the Sons of Thunder. It's like a bouncer group, right? These are the guys who, when the crowd gets too big, these guys are in charge of making so that he doesn't end up in the water the next time. Rocky and the Sons of Thunder go with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? And up there, amazing stuff happens. God shows up. Elijah and Moses talk to Jesus. Jesus is transfigured, and he becomes this otherworldly figure all while these guys are watching. It's phenomenal. They're amazed by it. James and John, the Sons of Thunder, are struck silent. Guess who's not? The listener, right? The listener is not silent. The listener does what I do in stressful situations. He begins to talk. Anybody in there with me? Thank you for admitting that. The three of you that admitted it and the one who shook their head. Okay. So he's present at the transfiguration. I said there are more of you, I know. He's present at the transfiguration, this glorious moment. Jesus has been changed, mutated into this divine being right before his eyes. This, this classic moment when Moses and Elijah are encouraging, encouraging Jesus for what's to come. By the way, remember this is Moses' first time he steps foot in the promised land. Coolest fulfillment of a blessing of God, maybe in all of scripture. Then our guy Peter begins to speak. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. If he stops there, he's good. It's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's asking to make little shrines. You know what happens to shrines, right? They become places of worship, and the, the inductee in the shrine becomes a figure of worship and idolatry. It's right behind there. He says, let's put up three shrines, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you, here on top of the mountain. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. I like this. Peter's blah, 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 and this cloud descends. <laughs> a cloud appears on the mountain and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. I love what God says. This is my son. Listen to him. Simon, be quiet. <laughs> Less talking, more listening. Listen to him. Man, could we take that advice and live with it for the rest of our life, right? Is that not just... Great discipleship advice all by itself. This is my son. Shut up and listen. Be quiet. Stop talking about all this stuff that you're trying to do. Just be quiet and listen to my son. You, Simon, the listener, by the way. Listen. Listen to him. Course correction from God. Stop talking. Start listening. Right? Simple little thing, right? It's not a, he's not really... Peter's not trying to start an idolatrous nation. He, he doesn't know what to do. It's so cool to be here. He wants to do something to, mer- to commemorate this thing. Later, it would be the, uh, the task of the, the mother of Constantine. Her name was Helen, St. Helena, Helena, who went around and, and marked all the significant places of Jesus' experience in life. We actually don't know which mountain this is. They take you on one when you're touring Israel, but they tell you when you go there, we think this is the one. We're not positive. We think this is the one. They know generally where it was, but there are several mountains in the region. So again, 
Peter seems to be the first one to confess that Jesus is God, which is awesome, right? He, he seems to be the first one to recognize that Jesus is not just an ordinary carpenter hanging around. He's actually God. The text is there in Matthew, 6, or Matthew 16. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus has asked them, who do people say that I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you. The, the, the lips is there. Something's left out. Simon bar Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Awesome. Awesome. Jesus says, God showed you this. Not in the cloud when we were there a few minutes ago, but he showed you this. You listened and you heard the voice of God. Amazing. Great. However, a few verses later, he's trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Jesus is explaining to the disciples he's going to be crucified. Peter says, no, 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 no. Takes him aside. Now picture this. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. Peter says, come here, I need to talk to you. Hey, man, not, not, not happening. Never going to happen. You, you will not be crucified. And, and, and you, you watch Peter. Peter's doing everything he can to keep this from happening. He's the guy who whips out the sword to try to stop this, right? He's the one who told Jesus, I will stand by your side and fight whoever shows up. Peter's serious about this. He takes Jesus aside and he says, no, no, that's not going to happen. We're not letting you be crucified. Jesus then turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now listen to what he says. You are a stumbling block to who? Me. Peter, you are tempting me to avoid the very thing I came to do. You're, I know you're trying to do the right thing. I know this is, you're out of a good heart and out of an attempt to, to be on the right side of this, the issue, but you're on the complete wrong side. You can talk yourself off course. You can assume you know the right thing and get yourself off course. And Peter's guilty both, right? You, me? I have been. So let's talk this course correction for just a quick section. I thought, thought this might be a helpful illustration, a helpful picture. Because Peter doesn't seem to be really far off, right? He's staying in the, the general vicinity of what God wants done. He seems to be... You know, I mean, he's at the transfiguration. He's the first one to recognize Jesus is God. So he's on a pretty good course. So what I did was I tried to give you a course you could follow pretty easily. So coming out of, uh, out of West Africa, that little, that little blip where that red line starts is a contested piece of territory known as Western Sahara that both the uh, countries above it claim as their own. And it's been contested for like 50 years. Okay? But it's right on the Tropic of Capricorn. That's why we put it there. Or Tropic of Cancer, I'm sorry. Right on the Tropic of Cancer. It's why we put it there so it's an easy line to follow. If you were to go west from there, you say, hey, I'm out of here. This Sahara place, it's contested. I don't want to be here. It's dry. I don't want to, you know, it's not a great beach. I'm leaving. If you go directly west of there and you fly about 6,000 miles, you come to La Paz, Baja, California. It's an upgrade. It's a good place to, to, to exchange for this. There are a lot of sharks on the inward portion of Baja, but don't worry about that right now. They, if you flew directly west, you'd end up in La Paz. If you could stay on a, on, a cor, on a compass heading of 270, which is west, okay? If you could stay on a compass heading of 270, 6,000 miles, boom, you're there. Okay? Easy enough? Seems easy enough. However, oh, that's La Paz, by the way. There's something known as the 1 in 60 rule. When you're navigating, a lot of pilots use this. The idea is this. 
If you're one mile off course after traveling 60 miles, your error in courses in your course heading is about one degree. So a mile off course in 60 miles isn't that big a deal, right? You'll be somewhere where you belong. You'll, you'll end up in La Paz somewhere or close enough to walk to, the, to get there. So one degree off over 60 miles leaves you about a mile off course. With me so far? Okay, because there's going to be a little math and I want you to catch it. If you're traveling 3,000 miles, so if you're coming from New York to, say, Southern California, if you're doing that trip, well, you're going to be 50 miles off course. So you're aiming for L.A., you end up in San Bernardino. It's not terrible. You end in San Diego. It might be an upgrade. Right? Right? So you're 50 miles off course after 3,000 miles, but they're going 6,000 miles. So you can do the math now, right? If you're going 6,000 miles, which is approximately what they're traveling, you're going to be 100 miles off course. So you're heading for La Paz. And instead of being at 270 on your trip, you're at 269, which means you're traveling just one degree south of your expected destination, okay? You're just one degree off. You leave Africa, you're heading for La Paz, it's 270, you end up at 269, the wind's blowing, your compass is off, whatever the case, 269. You know where you end up? It's not Cabo. You end up out in the middle of the oops, sorry, you end up out in the middle of the ocean. You went from La Paz to La Ocean. And now you're in La Big Trouble. Because you gotta figure out where you are and how to get back to where you came from. Don't be short on fuel. What I wanted to what I wanted to say was a small, small percentage off course over a long period can create a big problem. Right? Peter is one of the three best buddies of Jesus. He's one of the guys who's involved in everything. But Jesus keeps making these course corrections. Some of them a little more strident. Some of them a little harsher than others. But he keeps trying to keep Peter on the path. He's warning him about this. Hey, you know, I've been praying for you, Peter, because the devil is specifically after you trying to sift you. I've been praying for you. And Peter's continually, I'm, I'm on it, man. I know what I'm doing. I'm going the right direction. I got this. And Jesus keeps kind of having to make course corrections to keep him in the right direction, keep him in the right place. Peter would spend the rest of his life leading the followers of Jesus. The accuracy of his course then is critical, right? Because if he leads them out into the middle of the ocean, where are we now? So Jesus is course correcting with him maybe more often and more strictly because he knows the future of the man he's dealing with. So can I stop for a minute and bring this home to you and I? If Jesus is constantly course correcting with you, there's one of two options here. You're screwing this up a lot. It's possible. Or the, the trajectory you're on is so important. He's trying to make sure you hit the right place. And maybe it's both. Maybe it's both. So Peter gets back on, on course. At the end of his life, I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not, Jesus does a threefold correction about his choices. The question comes out at the beginning of this correction, Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's interesting that he says to him, listener, son of John, do you love me? Three times he asks him this. He answers, yes, Lord. 
You know that I love you. Is Peter confident? To the end. You know that I love you. Then he says, take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed those that I give to you. Take care of those that I've given to you. Acts chapter 2. Peter now speaking to a crowd of people who have been gathered because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These are the words of this guy who's had to have course correction over and over and over again. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted him to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. Does Peter understand what's going on now? Absolutely. Peter is now certain of his message, certain of what he's supposed to be called to speak. He's certain of what he's doing. And as he starts out in Acts chapter 2, he's directing people clearly. Look, Jesus is God, resurrected from the dead. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. What you're seeing here today is an activity of God's presence on these people. It's early summer, 27 AD. Peter and John... After this experience, are entering the temple. It's Acts chapter 3. They've had this wonderful experience in the previous days. They've seen thousands of people follow Jesus after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts chapter 3, they're headed for church. They're going in at the time of prayer. And as they arrive, a scene unfolds. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being, look, being carried to the temple gates called beautiful. What's happening to the guy who's lame? He's actively being carried to be put down. Now, he's not laying there all day long. He's being brought in there when there's traffic, right? There's no use for the guy to lay out in the sun all day. Family members, somebody is bringing him and laying him down by the gate where the traffic's going to be, where there are going to be people, Right? So they, they're, they're, he's being taken to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Maybe they've seen him before. Certainly some of these people have seen him before. They talk about it later. But he's being set down. He's in the act of being placed there as these two guys arrive. So they're coming in. He's being brought in. And as he's being placed there, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. So he sees the two guys coming in. Now, stop for a sec. Anybody else avoid this? I don't know. I, 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 you go to the gas station, and you see a guy hanging around the gas station. Do you kind of go, oh, man. Or you're like, you know, some of you maybe, I, got, I, I keep some money in my pocket for this purpose. I hope that's you. It, it's not me. It's not me. I can never remember that long enough. It's, you know, distraction thing. So I never have enough money and I don't want to drag my wallet out and see what I've got. So I kind of avoid this situation. I'm turning off on Arden. I always, there's two left, two left-hand turn lanes. I take the one that's on the right instead of the one that's on the left because there's already somebody, always someone there. This is confession time for me. I'm hoping there's somebody else in, in, in the same place with me. You don't have to say it, but I'm just feeling really bad about this whole experience. 
this guy says, he sees these guys coming in. He's about to be set down there to do his job. He's going to beg for a, for a while while people are coming in and out of the temple. And, and he looks at these guys and he says, hey, guys, can you, can you help a brother out? I need some money, some gas money. I, I need, you know, I don't have any food. Can you, help, can you help me out? Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. Do you know that he's asking him to look at both of them? Do you see a subtle, maybe one degree change? Look at us. Not look at me. Look at us. This guy, they are competitive. John and Peter, you see it through the scriptures. They race. They hear about the resurrection of Jesus. They race. And John lets you know he won. You read the text. It says that. It actually says that. We ran to the, the, to the, to the grave. I got there first. Peter coming after me looked in. Just so you all know, I won. Look at us. Now look at me. Look at us. Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. Now, if you're the guy who's just been sitting there, why are you bothering me? If you don't have any money, then let me talk to somebody who does. Silver and gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I will give to you. And the name of Peter of Capernaum? the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Small change. Huge difference. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, we're not told exactly how this process works, but it's, it's got to be phenomenal, you know? Your legs aren't working, your parts aren't working, stuff's broken, it's not, not functional. Maybe it's been that way your whole life or a few years. Or, you know, Tim and I were just talking just this morning. We were standing in the back. I mentioned how old he was. And he said, that he, man, I don't know what that is. You, you start aching and stuff, and you don't know why you're aching. This stuff didn't ache before. Why does it ache now? All of a sudden, some stuff... Tim's younger than me, just in case you wanted to know. He, all of a sudden, the, this guy's stuff that's broken and not working starts to tingle, I don't know, blood flow happens, oxygen goes where oxygen hasn't been, things start to knit together. I don't exactly know what happens, but stuff starts to happen in this guy's body. Transformational stuff begins to happen. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, bam, stuff starts to happen. Things start to change. That's, that's the key. That's what, for the rest of Peter's life, he knows this is the key. For the rest of his life, every time you see him doing this thing, it's never in the name of the church, never in the name of the word, never in the name of himself. It's always in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, bam. And this guy starts to heal. Now he doesn't, apparently, it's, it's not full-fledged going strong right away because they take him by the right hand. So Peter reaches down and grabs him. I wonder if like John got the left hand, but they didn't mention him. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. So, so I, I need, to, I need to, 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 to step off for a second, just make a quick church picture. That's what we do. We say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
Nazareth, come on. And then we, we assist, we get involved, we reach out, we put our hands into this game, and we get involved lifting people up and helping people out. That's what church is supposed to be. They put their hands on the guy and they begin. And as they begin to lift, Jesus fulfills the, the blessing that was there. And he, he begins to heal. And his, so the Bible describes his feet and his ankles becoming strong. What had been broken becomes healed. What had been weak becomes strong. And he starts to get, get his feet under him for the first time. Some of you have never been converted. Some of you grew up converted which is awesome for you because you don't have the mess and the scars and the background that, that people who had to be converted deal with. But I'm telling you, when you get converted, it's like having your feet come under you. It's like beginning to understand the world that you didn't understand before. It's, it's, it's putting new glasses on. It's understanding things. It's, it's enlightening a part of your brain that wasn't enlightened. The Holy Spirit sort of gets in and you start to see things you didn't see, imagine things you didn't imagine, know things you didn't even know. He gets his feet under him, and he goes to church. As his ankles begin to heal and his feet begins to heal, he begins to walk. Then he went with them into the courts. Now notice, he's jumping and walking and praising God. It's worship. It's, it's, it's a man's expression of worship. It's a man saying, God's gotten hold of me and I can't keep it in. One of the, one of the, one of the struggles of the European church is there's a, there's a lid on us. You know what I mean? We've got like, like an emotional lid on us. We need, some, we need some Africans and some Latins to sort of break open that lid a little bit because we tend to hold it all inside. And as we do, we're like, we're singing the most beautiful songs. We're singing the most amazing things. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And we sing it with a lid on it. This guy is laughing, jumping, walking, praising God as he enters, enters the temple with Peter and John. So he's like a jumping bean between these two guys, disrupting everything as he comes in. He's making this crazy noise and all of this stuff is happening. And they come into the sanctuary. They come into the temple. Who doesn't call attention to himself? Notice you don't, you, you don't see this thing, and Peter made him stop so that people could talk to Peter. He walks alongside. And as a crowd begins to gather, not to see Peter or John, but to see this great thing that God has done, Peter points them back to Jesus again. He just keeps pointing people to Jesus. He's on course now. And on this course, he will travel for the next 50 years or so. Till he's an old man and Nero hangs him on a cross upside down. 40 years or so, 30 years or so, whatever it takes for the rest of his life. But he never fails to see that his mission is and always will be pointing people to Jesus, pointing to the crucifixion and the resurrection and the empty tomb and the real source of power. He's not about building uh, little shrines anymore so people can come and celebrate things that God just wants to show them his blessing. You know, the, the call of a disciple is not to be perfect. 
It's just to be on the right course. Peter messes stuff up a lot, still does after this. He and, he and Paul have that big argument in Acts chapter 15, remember? By the way, you want to talk about competitive? Paul has to explain he won the argument in Galatians. These are still people, but they're on the right course and they understand the direction they're supposed to be going. And they just keep pointing people to Jesus. They just keep pointing people to Jesus. They just keep pointing people to Jesus. You see, that's our call. That's what you and I are to do. We're not the source of the authority or the power. We're not the source of blessing. We get, by the grace of God, the opportunity to, to participate. But our primary job is to just point people to Jesus. To say, there's the, there's the one, that's the source, that's the, that's the authority that you've been looking for. He does stuff. He's amazing. Do you know he's God? Do you know he came, he lived, he died so that you could have opportunity to be in heaven? And he lives again? It's amazing. And that's what we get to do. As disciples of Jesus, stay the course that keeps pointing others to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, there's there's so little in us that really really works on its own well. Thank you for gifts and blessings. Forgiveness and infilling of your spirit. I pray today if someone is looking for answers, someone here today is life's just struggling. It's been a hard week, it's been a hard month, it's been a hard year but they're struggling. Lord Jesus, I just ask you to step into their life to show them your love and your mercy and your blessing, your grace and your authority. To be the power that heals what's broken in them. That touches them in a place and in a way that's so filling that they can't help but worship. Lord, some of us came here today with a pretty good idea of what the course was and maybe we've been a little off course. Thinking that it was about us or that we had something to do with what you do more than just being a voice. Pray for a course correction for us. Those of us who who've been in the in the church for years have been practicing Christianity for a long time. Help us to stay the course all the way to the end. Help us to listen for your voice. To heed what you say. 
recognize it all, power and glory and authority are yours. Lord, today we surrender who we are, what we think we're supposed to be doing, the course we've chosen to you. And we ask that you would yoke us together with you. Put us back on the right course. For the first time, before the 51st time. In Jesus' name, amen.